So Romans chapter 5, entitled Peace with God Through Faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we were reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, the reading. Awesome. Good morning, everyone. How are you going? Uh, my name is Joel, and it's, uh, it's good to have you here. Um, if you haven't been here, we've been going through the book of Romans, and um, essentially it finds its, uh, you know, we come to chapter 5, and there's a bit of a shift, there's a bit of a change, and if you notice, right in verse 1, it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, and that's almost like, um, in some ways, it's like, the summary of the first four chapters of what Paul's been talking about. He's, been, he's said how we're, we are like utterly unrighteous. No one is righteous, not even one. All have fallen short of the glory of God, and uh, we've all sinned. Uh, but in that, God has stepped in, provided an atoning sacrifice that is Jesus, and that we actually find uh, reconciliation, which is what this passage is talking about. We actually are brought back, redeemed, to be in a right relationship with God again. And as we heard last week, that is, comes by having faith in Jesus. Like Andrew really emphasized that last week, that it's in him, through him, not by any other thing, not by our works, not by, but in Jesus. And then we get this shift, and essentially what we're looking at today is Paul sort of unpacks some of the implications of that. So because we have been justified by faith, because we have been declared righteous, which is what justified means. We therefore have peace with God, which then allows us to walk through our suffering and walk through our battle with sin. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So firstly, peace. Um, I don't know about you, you probably find it hard to imagine, but I, I play soccer and probably once or twice a year, I know it's hard to believe, but I get a yellow card, all right? I'm sorry, I'm just confessing that here. I know I'm super the good little boy, that pastor, preacher, or whatever, but I get a yellow card, okay? I'm broken too. Um, but you know, it's always, it's always hard when you get a yellow card, particularly in the first half, because then you go through the rest of the game, 
and you're a bit like nervous because you're like, I don't know if I can go in for a tackle. I certainly can't carry on to the ref like I've been doing all game and I need to like control myself and I get a bit nervous because like if you get a second yellow card, well then you're off for the game, your team's down a player and you miss like the next week or two or three. And I've never had that or I'm not that bad. But do you know what I mean? Like you get, you get nervous for the, for the punishment. What's even more awkward sometimes is when you get the same referee the next week, all right? And you've been going all game, and then he rocks up, and you just, you just have that, you look at each other, and you go, oh, no. Like, he's feeling it, you're feeling it. And, like, the slate is technically, like, it's a clean slate, yeah? There's no yellow card against your name. But in the sort of relationship, there's, like, this awkward tension. There's this sort of, like, I'm watching you, and I'm a bit nervous around you. I mean, some of the boys are smiling. They know what's up. They know what's going on. You know, and I think as I was reading this passage, I just thought, I think so much that is what we feel in our relationship with God sometimes. Like we know technically that the slate has been wiped clean. We kind of get the first few chapters that, yeah, we've been justified by faith. Jesus paid for my sin. Like I kind of get that. But then we live out this relationship with God where we're sort of still a bit fearful, still a bit nervous about punishment, about God sort of, you know, coming down on us. We sort of walk around on eggshells, not, not kind of sure where we stand with God. Does anyone, like, relate to that at all? Like, I think that's so often what happens. We're sort of like... I like Frodo walking through the land, land of Middle Earth, you know, with this ring, thinking that if I, if I stuff up, the eye is going to see me and it's all over. And so we carry this weight, this burden of like, I cannot, like, I can't stuff up. And as we read through Romans, what Paul is trying to say here is that that is not the relationship with God that Jesus has saved us for. What Paul is saying is that because we've been justified, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace with him. And this word peace is not just like inner tranquility, like this sense that I can just sit there and go, hmm, and like still myself and it's all great. Like this, it's so much deeper than that. This word peace has to do with completeness and wholeness, to be at one. It links back to the Hebrew word of shalom, where everything is as it should be. That is the result of being justified by faith, of being declared righteous, is that we have this relationship with God of wholeness, completeness, of peace. Or as it says in verse 11, that we've been reconciled to him. We've been brought back together into a relationship where We're no longer under the wrath that we deserved. So we're no longer fearful in the wrong sense. Like there's a a healthy biblical sense of fear to be like in awe and wonder and to take God seriously. Like we can be sort of fearful of a fire where you can sit and you can look at it and you can go, wow, fire is amazing, but I know that I need to take it seriously. I can't sort of play around with the fire. In the same way, we're to have that healthy sense, that biblical sense of fear, but we're not to have the sense of fear that has to do with punishment. This is what it says in 1 John 
chapter 4. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And what kind of fear is that? It's the fear that has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I think for some of us this morning, we've just got to ask ourselves, what does my relationship with God look like? Is it one where I'm fearing punishment? Where I'm walking on eggshells, unsure of my salvation, unsure if like God loves me or anything like that? Or do we have a sense of confidence? A sense that, you know what, I've been saved and I have peace with God because of that. And that's not reliant on my work, that's reliant on God's work. And I hope as we go through this morning that that's what will, the Spirit will work up in us, this sense of confidence in Christ. See, because Paul explains this peace in the next verse, in verse 2. It says, Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, once again, Paul is writing like big sentences, there's these big phrases, and so you need to try and like follow the thought through. Paul said, we've been justified by faith, therefore we have this peace relationship with God. We are at one, we have wholeness with Him. Therefore, it means we have obtained access, and we have standing grace, and we have hope of the glory of God. So firstly, that we have obtained access. 24-7, we can approach God knowing that He hears us, knowing that He cares for us, knowing that He is for us and not against us. How, how bold are we in our prayer life with God, in our relationship with Him? Like, we have obtained access to the King of Kings. Like, Lord of Lords, it's not to be just, oh, I'm not quite sure. Like, we can have confidence and approach Him. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. When we're struggling, when we're going through hard times, do we approach God with confidence? Because that's the relationship that we've been saved for. We've been justified. We have peace with God. Therefore, we can, we've got access. We can approach with confidence. The second thing in that is that we stand in grace. See, right now, where we are, we stand in a position of grace before God. Not under punishment, not under condemnation, but we stand in a position of grace. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That we are citizens of heaven. Like That is our position right now before God. One of grace, one of in the heavens with Him. I just think for some of us this morning, we need to know that like we can stand here on earth because we know that we're seated with God in heaven. Because like that, that's the position we're in before God. We don't have to try and earn anything. We don't have to try and... like We are in a position of grace, so we can stand here knowing that, in confidence, in assurance. And grace isn't just pardon for our sins, but grace is, is the power to live with God. You know, it's the old acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. The fullness of God dwells with us. 
that we have every spiritual blessing with him. So we stand in grace. And not only that, but we have the hope of the glory of God. You know, one of the themes I've sort of followed through the first bit of Romans is that of the glory of God. Where in chapter 1 it says that uh, we exchanged the glory of God. We exchanged the creator for the created. We made this like horrible trade thinking that we'd found something better when really like we just chose so much lesser. And so because we exchanged the glory of God in chapter 3, it says that we have fallen short or that we lack the glory of God. And then here in chapter 5, Paul says is that we actually have the hope of the glory of God, that we look forward to this day when God will gloriously restore his creation and his people. And we look forward with hope, knowing that though we've traded it, though we fall short, God is going to restore his glory to this earth and to his people. Is that good news? It should be, yeah? That we've been justified, therefore we have peace with God, which means we have access, we have standing grace, and we have hope to look forward. And so as chapter 5 goes on, Paul now gives a couple implications of what that means for our battle with suffering and our battle with sin. See, because Paul says in the very next verse, in, chap- in verse 3, not only that, so all that's great, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Which for us is like completely like, that doesn't make sense. Like for us, I think in our world, we think, okay, I've been justified, I've been declared righteous, which means I have peace with God, which means I have access to Him, Therefore, I should live happily ever after. <laughs> like, that's what makes sense for us. That's what our world teaches us, and that seems to be like the good logical flow. And unfortunately, sometimes there are many in the church that teach that. But Paul quickly reminds us that these sufferings are part of our life, part of our world. But he gives it this twist that we need to know and we need to remember is that our sufferings are not meaningless. They're not without purpose. They're not out of control. But through them, God is doing something. The verses say that our suffering produces these things. In Corinthians, Paul writes that our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. They're never wasted. These trials that we go through are never wasted. And sometimes that's really hard. Of course. Sometimes that's like no one wants to hear that. And whether, you know, God puts them in our lives or God allows them into our lives, like I, I, can't, I haven't quite figured all that out. We might never know the answers, but what I do know is that the Bible teaches is that God's power and his grace can carry us through. He can carry us through this broken world, carry us through our suffering, carry us through our battles with sin. So even Paul says, you know, he says in the end of 2 Corinthians that he has this thorn in his flesh. And he prays three times, God, take it away. Like, this is Paul, super apostle. Surely God would listen to him. And what does God say? Like, he denies him three times and says, you know what? My grace is going to be sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He doesn't take away the thing, but he says, you know what, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you God's riches at Christ's expense to keep walking through, to keep following me, to keep holding on. And For some of us, we just need to remind ourselves this morning of that, that God is actually doing something and God is going to carry us through by his grace. See, for Paul, faith and hope are like a muscle. And believe it or not, your muscles need resistance to grow. But thing is, I don't often like resistance. As soon as it gets hard, like I do a few push-ups, starts to hurt, all right, I'm done. Like, but Paul is saying, and we heard it a couple of weeks ago, that we need these trials, we need these sufferings, because our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The word suffering literally means to be under pressure, to be hemmed in, or Another translation was to be surrounded by a siege at war. Imagine being in a city totally surrounded. There's no escape. You're hemmed in, under pressure. And it's in that, that if we can cling to God, he says he'll produce endurance. Endurance means to remain under, to stay true, even though all circumstances around us suggest that that would be foolish. And it's in that, in that remaining under that God actually produces within us this character, this maturity of faith, this provenness and genuineness. And as that begins to grow in us, it begins to lead us more to this hope. Hope being the expectation of what God is to do, of what is to come, to anticipate and to welcome God's future. See, we need to remind ourselves that in our struggle, in our suffering, that God's actually doing something. And it's producing in us this endurance, this character, and this hope. And more and more we begin to realize that, you know what? This world is not our home. And that there are far, far better things ahead than any that we might leave behind. Because God is good and faithful and loving. And I think for some of us, we are resisting the resistance. We are sort of, we shut ourselves off. We don't think about it. We don't wrestle with the questions or the doubts. We don't feel the pain that sometimes we need to feel. Like we've, we've conditioned ourselves in our world to like just be comfortable and not feel pain. And if it's too hard, we can just choose something else, you know. But as hard as it is to say it, I believe that the Bible teaches us to embrace God during these times, knowing that God can do something far greater. And sometimes that is the escape. Sometimes he will provide a way out. Sometimes he will do something miraculous. And other times he will do something far greater, far deeper in our hearts and in our lives. See, in chapter 4, we've got the example of Abraham. You know, who him and his wife had been promised a son and it wasn't coming. Year after year, it just became more and more unlikely. And yet, this is what it says of Abraham in verse 18. It says, um, it says that in hope, he believed against hope. It didn't make sense, but he believed. And yet, this is the muscle language. He did not weaken in faith, 
But he grew strong in his faith. And how did he grow strong in his faith? Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Just kept holding on. God, you've promised this, you said this, and so I'm going to hold on. And in holding on, even though it didn't make sense, even though there was resistance and circumstances that he held on. And in those verses, it says, that is how he gave glory to God. That was his act of worship, of just holding on to the promises, even though everything about life suggested that would be foolish. That's not worth it. So I want to encourage us this morning just to hold on, just to keep holding on. Because here's one of the promises of God in verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame. Paul writes, hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love, and here's the emphasis, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Paul anchors this whole thing of encouragement to say, yeah, I want you, hope does not put us to shame. And the reason we know that is because look at what God has done. He has poured out his spirit. He has poured out his love. He has justified us. He has brought us into this relationship of peace. I mean, just think of Psalm 23 when David writes, you know, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I fear no evil. Why? For I know that you are with me. And it says later on that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. How could David be so confident of that? How could he know that goodness and mercy will follow him? Because I think at some points he actually turned back to see it. He actually looked back and saw that, you know what, God has done this and God has done this and God has done this and therefore I can continue to hold on because I know that hope will not put me to shame. Or as Paul writes in in chapter 8, he says, what then shall we say to these things? He's given like eight chapters of like theological, like, you know, and if you've been reading through Romans, like you've probably just like me, you're reading through it and like, I don't really get what he's saying, but I kind of get some of the stuff he's saying, and there's so much in it. And then he says, what shall we say in response to all this? And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it's this rhetorical question because he's just proven over eight chapters that God is very clearly for us. He has justified us. He has made us right with him. He has conquered sin and death. He's very clearly for, for us. And so who can be against us? As he says later on in the verses, what shall separate us from the love of God? No trials, no tribute. Like nothing is going to get in the way now. Continues in verse 32. And this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says, And if he gave up his son, will he not also graciously give us all things? If God gave Jesus to save us, to bring us into a right relationship with him, He's not going to get halfway through your life and go, actually, that's a bit of a surprise. Did not see that coming. Look how bad they turned out. They are just, like God's not going to be surprised about what happens later in your life. God knows all. He's above all. He's outside of time. When he paid for our death on the cross, he paid for all of it. 
because he knows all of it. And so if he gave us his son then, will he not also graciously give us everything else for us to reach the other side, for us to reach the end, to us to get to glory? We've seen so clearly in the first few chapters that, that God is for us, that he's paid the price, that he has poured out his love. And so if he's done that, will he not also do all things? Hope will not put us to shame. And so hold on. In the words of Drake, just hold on. We're going home. We're getting there. We will get there. Not by how good we are. Not by our effort. But by simply holding on to a gracious and heavenly father. See, because he's really what I feel like is the great truth of chapter 5 is that grace is greater than our sin and our suffering. If you've got your Bibles, you can flick through some of the verses from sort of verse 9 onwards and just highlight the times where it says much more, which is really the emphasis of the second half of the chapter, is that this happened already, how much more will this happen? And it's this whole comparison. If, 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 if sin and death came through Adam, how much more will come through Jesus, the Son of God? Like it's sort of this logical argument that Paul makes. And it finds its sort of climax and conclusion in, in verse 20 and 21. Where it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we're just going to land here for a little bit, this idea where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's really the, the climax of the rest of these verses, that if this happened, how much more will this happen? And even the little details in the language here, in, in verse 21, where it says, Sin and death reigned, past tense, where grace and righteousness either reign or will reign. I think we do we have it on the screen, Tim? The um, next one, I think. That's next one across. Yeah, that's it. So sin reigned in death, past tense. Grace, righteousness, the language in the passage is that they reign or that they will reign. And see, in our battle with sin and suffering, I think sometimes we just need to remind ourselves that actually Jesus is the one who reigns. He's the one that's got the victory in the war. See, sometimes we, we treat, I think, the way that we respond to the cross and we begin to treat um, what Jesus did as sort of like this. Sometimes we treat it almost like a mutual agreement. That Jesus and the devil met and the devil read out the sort of, you know, the invoice. This is all the stuff you need to pay for. And Jesus sort of like, oh, okay, yep, yep, yep. And we get to this point where it's like, okay, that feels like a fair thing. They shake hands and both parties walk away fairly happy with what they did. And we go, feel our sins are forgiven. I think sometimes we respond to the cross 
almost like that. And we talk about it as in like, but the Bible teaches a complete opposite story that actually death was completely defeated. Jesus says, it says in 1 Timothy that sin and death are abolished by what Jesus did. Like it's always strong language that even like you look at the gospel accounts when Jesus says it is finished. Straight away, the veil is torn. All these dead people rise from the tombs and it's like mass resurrection. The Roman centurion standing right there and he believes. Like it is incredible what happens in that moment because Jesus won a victory. Did not just make a quiet deal. It was a complete victory. It says in Colossians 2 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. Colossians 2.15 Jesus disarmed the powers. He triumphed over them. That the cross was this incredible victory over sin, over suffering. And so the beauty of all that for us is that where sin increased, their grace abounds. Sin and death do not have the final say. And God has proven through Jesus that, that our sin cannot outpace God's grace. God's grace is always a step ahead, proving that he is for us. Now, this doesn't mean we can just keep on sinning, which is exactly what chapter 6 starts with, and maybe Andrew will touch on that next week. But it doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want. But for now, we want to just focus on the fact that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And even for us to know that that is not just something God did back one day in the past, but that is actually the nature of God. When God introduces himself to the Israelites and to Moses in Exodus 34, he gives them the law and the commandments and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh introduces his name. It's the first time we get those words and he says, he gives himself a bit of a bio, you know, 150 characters to sort of tell everyone who he is. And this is what he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he goes on to talk about how he will by no means clear the guilty, that because of his holiness, he will deal with sin but in his mercy and his grace, he actually puts that on upon himself. So the very nature of God is one who is merciful and gracious. He has been right from the start of Scripture all the way throughout. God, God merciful and gracious. That's who he was. That's who he is. That's who he will continue to be. And he will continue to act faithful and true to his character. Here's a quote from Jared Wilson on these verses. It says, The promise of Romans 5, 20-21 is thrilling. Because those saved by grace through faith are freely and fully justified. Having been forgiven, counted righteous, and reconciled to the Father, no sin can overcome God's abundant grace. He is more ready to forgive than we are to sin. And, ho- and oh, how prone to sin we are. 
We are chomping at the bit, aren't we? Wretched as we are, who will rescue us? Praise be to God for his glorious grace. There is more grace in him than sin in us. And we just need to remind ourselves this morning of that. That there is more grace in him than sin in us. You cannot outrun it. He is more ready to forgive than we are to sin. How beautiful. How wonderful. How powerful the fact that, that grace reigns. And that we are in this right relationship with God. And as the verse says, that leads to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He is not going to sell you short. He's not going to stop halfway. But he says he promises that he will complete the work that he started. See, the reality is, is that most likely we will tire. We'll try holding on and our arms will begin to slip and we're going to make mistakes. We're going to get yellow cards. We're going to fall short. But the gracious arms of God will not. He will never tire. He will never weaken. He will never let us go. And he has shown so clearly through the victory of Jesus that he is for us, that he is gracious, and that he has poured out his spirit, and he will continue to show grace to his children all the way through. So my encouragement this morning is that we would place our hope and our lives in the hands of Christ our King. The great song, Come Thou Fount, says this in verse 3, O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yet here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And I think that for me just sums up so beautifully that you know what? I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to leave the God I love, yet we come again and we gather again and we just say, look, God, here's my heart. Take and seal it. I'm sort of resetting (laughs) this week to put my hands, my life in the hands of Christ my King and say, look, you know, just have your way again. I want to put my trust in you again. And for some of us, we've done that once before and maybe we've got to do that again this morning whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time, we've just got to come back and say, you know what? Putting my hope back in Jesus. Putting my trust back in Him. I'm going to grab a hold again and just hold on to Him, knowing that He is for us, knowing that He'll carry us through, that He's gracious and loving. Amen? I'm going to invite our music team up, and we're actually going to finish by singing this song, not this song, but like a song called In the Hands of Christ My King. And I want to encourage you to use this song as a prayer. A prayer that says, show me the Father, show me the Son. I believe for some of us this morning, that's the prayer we need to pray. God, just show me your love and grace. Show me who you are again. And for some of us, the prayer is that of the chorus. All my hope is found in the hands of Christ, my King. So may my life be found in the hands of Christ, my King.
And will we just surrender and say, you know what, God, I need you. So come, show me yourself. And I'll put my hands and my hope in you. So let's, um, let's stand and let's sing that together.